This is The Podling, a podcast that's exploring what linguistics looks like inside and out of the classroom, starting with our very own professors here at Western. Well, this is it. We've reached the final episode of The Podling's first season. Before diving into this interview, I want to thank Kristen Denham and Sarah Helms for giving me the go-ahead on this podcast. It's really been a dream to produce. I also want to thank all of the professors who have given their time and thoughts to each episode, because without them, there'd be no podling. And thank you! I'm glad you came along for the ride. In this episode, I spoke with Dr. Christina Kepi. We talked about her upcoming cross-listed course, a Canadian-American Studies and Linguistics 302, that'll cover the Acadian diaspora in Canada. Christina also shares the story of how a study abroad trip led her to specialize in studies of Acadian communities. And she explains how her roles as both director of the Center for Canadian American Studies and a professor across departments allow her to bridge all of her interests. I had a really great time getting to hear from Christina in this interview, and I think you will too. Of course, thanks must be given to Graham Blair for providing this episode's transcript. And now, on to the interview. so much for being here. It's so, so exciting to talk to you. How has spring quarter been for you? Spring quarter has actually been pretty smooth for me. I've really enjoyed this whole working from home thing uh, when I'm not teaching. I haven't been teaching since fall quarter. And so I've gotten into the routine of waking up without an alarm, leisurely having my morning coffee, getting a workout in, and then settling down to just work from home in this really nice office that I have at home, you know, really nicely decorated and bright. And I'm the director of Canadian American Studies. So that way, since I'm not teaching, I'm doing administrative duties, allowing me mm-hmm. to just stay home. And which means most of my job res- involves email, as it does for most people. <laughs> but I can do that very well. And we had a busy fall and winter for the program in terms of new procedures that we're bringing into the program and reporting systems that we're creating, establishing new faculty groups and whatnot, just getting the program off and running in in directions that it hasn't been for the past 50 years, because we're Mm. celebrating 50 years this year. Congrats. But now in the spring, everything in terms of those deadlines that we had to meet were sort of, okay, we met those. And so it's uh, a lot of forward thinking now, looking forward to to next year and some projection going on. So it hasn't been hairy at all. Nice. It's been nice. (sighs) And I like it. So I'm actually going to continue to work from home partially in the fall when I, the days I don't teach, I'm going to be home. Nice. At least I hope so. You know, that's, that's what the intent is. Yeah. So you found a new groove. Uh, Exactly. Yes. I find that I'm much more efficient with my time. Mm. And 
this is going to sound funny, but for every email that I get on a Monday, because Monday seems to be email day, I give myself 10 minutes in the garden. Oh. And so I'm allowed to use those 10 minutes in the garden whenever I want during the week. And so I get, uh, I think last Monday I had about like 30 emails or something. So that's a lot of gardening. <laughs> you know? <laughs> So, uh, whether it's gardening or any sort of yard work that I take during the week and fiddle it, fit it in. Yeah. I yeah. love it's that. It's a groove. I'm efficient. Um, it, it's brought me closer to my partner. My cat loves it. <laughs> so I'm good. I miss the face-to-face, of course. Mm-hmm. Who doesn't? Yeah, yeah. That's, I love that you found that balance and a new setup, like, to get some different work done. That's, I've also had some of that where I figured out some things about how I work better and how I do not. Um, And I'm, I am so on board with that kind of uh, earning your tokens (laughs) for certain tasks to then, you know, to go spend on the prizes at the arcade. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm super. I'll tell you, my garden has never looked better. (laughs) It's, it's gorgeous out there right now. And I'm on my second crop of lettuce. Oh, so you grow edible yeah, things. I've got a little garden, a little veggie garden and then flowers and whatnot. It's such a satisfying project. I've also done some mm-hmm. of that in the year. So before we are to, I was going to say in the weeds, but I guess we're almost literally in the weeds with that one. <laughs> Would you please introduce yourself um, in addition to Canadian Studies Director? It'd be awesome to hear about your other roles at Western, uh, the topics that you teach in or research, and anything else that you'd want to add. Oh, boy. Oh, where to begin? Well, my name is Christina Kepi, and I am from the east coast of Canada, right from the maritime province of New Brunswick. So that's right east of Quebec. Um, I have been a professor here at Western since 2008. I came like fresh out of grad school, so green. I was, I, I was just shy of 30 when I defended. So I was very young. That's very young. Yeah. Really. And I'm, I'm looking back at some of my choices and decisions. Like, oh, that's a green decision. <laughs> um, I grew up speaking French from a very young age. English is my first language, but I went to French immersion. And so from grade one, everything, yes, grade one, not first grade. That's Canadian right mm-hmm. there. From grade one, everything was in French. And we had one hour of English language arts a couple of times a week, maybe. And that went all the way up through high school. So all my education is in French, which means that when I teach, I'm much better in French than I am, uh, than I am in English. If I teach in English, I have to really think hard about how I explain things. It doesn't come out as smoothly uh, just because my educational environment was always in French, much more relaxed in French. Mm-hmm. I teach mainly, well, I guess mainly in the previous years, I've been in the Department of Modern Classical Languages. That's where I was hired to teach French classes across the board, but I was hired to be their linguistic specialist. And they needed someone to teach French phonetics, which was a, a, still is a class in the major uh, for the French program. And uh, I also teach sociolinguistics. That's my main area of, you might say, expertise 
in, in French, is sociolinguistics. So I teach a variety of, of classes, but focusing on Francophone Canada. So I'll do comparisons with other Francophone countries, of course, but always with a strong focus on Canada. So over the years, I've developed courses on Quebec culture and linguistics, and then specifically on Acadia, which is my cultural area of specialization. So I'll do culture and conversation classes on Acadia. And I always interweave a little bit of Canadian knowledge, even into the basic French 100 series classes. Mm -hmm. And of course, second and third year when I'm just doing a language class. But in recent years, I've transitioned over into another realm, and that's in Canadian American studies. And I just realized that I need to back up and say that I also teach in the linguistics department. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. uh, um, I also teach in linguistics usually, or it has been until my most recent uh, contract change, one class a year in linguistics. And again, it would be in the basic sociolinguistics, uh, the Ling 204 class. And then I would have a sociolinguistic fieldwork class, uh, a 402 that I would teach. And I would rotate those every year or so. But that was only one class a year because my main appointment was with modern classical languages. But now, back over to where I was initially going. In 2000 and when was it? 18? Yes, September 2018, I became director of the Center for Canadian American Studies here at Western. And I jumped on board part-time. So I was part-time in, in modern classical languages and part-time in Can-Am as administrator, which meant that my teaching duties got cut in half. But everything else kind of bumped up, you know, administrative duties and service. Like, oof. <laughs> it is very, very hard to teach and run a program at the same time. So in September... 2000 was it just last year yes yeah just last year i went full-time uh as director so i'm still technically faculty in modern classical languages but i only teach one class a year Mm -hmm. minimum i can add another one if i want but my my preference is to grow canadian american studies and all that's involved in that and so i've got a lot of projects on on the horizon for that that was a really long answer. But it was perfect. <laughs> I don't know it if it made like any sense. It absolutely did. I think you were in a lot of cool places and in a lot of cool roles. And I think you gave us the full overview. Mm. I learned things. I learned things I did not know about what you do at Western. So oh, I feel wow. informed. <laughs> you mentioned Acadian as your kind of cultural specialization. Mm-hmm. And uh, I know that you were teaching a 302, uh, that new course number for the linguistics department, and it's Acadian diaspora in Canada and the US. Uh, yes. Would you tell us a little bit about what that class is going to look like? It's my effort to bridge uh, an area of Canadian studies with the French program, essentially, but in, in English. So in Canadian American Studies, if you want to major, you can choose between four different areas of specialization. And one of them is Francophone Canada. And of course, those students would take the French program, courses in there, and also courses in history that deal with uh, French Canada and any a variety of courses that will touch on Francophone Canada. 
but it's there's never been an area of specialization on the minorities of Francophone Canada done in English. Mm-hmm. And so I'm trying to bridge modern classical languages with Canadian studies, my area of specialization to potentially bring in more students into the into the realm of Canadian studies through Francophone Canada, because while rightly so, there is a lot of attention being given to the other areas of specialization being cultures, histories and identities, namely uh, Indigenous cultures, uh, colonialism and, and settler settler colonialism. There is this other area that I I specialize in, and so I'm trying to bring in knowledge or bring interest in that way. So the course, we actually, we investigate what I would say is the contemporary linguistic and, and cultural impacts of ethnic cleansing that happened in the 18th century. Mm-hmm. And that along with the present day assimilation on Acadian communities in Eastern Canada and in parts of the United States, namely Maine and Louisiana, but also a little bit on the East Coast. Mm -hmm. So we're going to be looking at language ideologies uh, in these different communities and how they are similar yet different and what these language ideologies and linguistic features in their speech make up a social identity of a minority minority group's ethnic survival, you might say, to this uh, ethnic cleansing. Mm-hmm. And it has been uh, acknowledged as an ethnic cleansing. The uh, 1755 deportation of the, of the Acadians has been formally recognized as ethnic cleansing and genocide. Wow. So it's not, uh, it, it's very much uh, sociological aspect, uh, investigation in linguistic vitality, perspective that we take. Um, we're not going to be doing any linguistic analysis in terms of uh, phonological features, for example, or syntactic features, because it's in English. Mm-hmm. And so <laughs> can't yeah. really delve too much into the specific specifics of the French language right there. For sure. So it's cross-listed actually with linguistics and Canyon. However, so there will be students in the Canadian Studies yes. program who are also yeah. oh, very cool. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So it's filling up and I have some uh, guest speakers already lined up. Some of my colleagues from projects that I've done in the past and people that I've met from conferences. So I have someone who works at the Acadian Archives at uh, University of Maine at Fort Kent. And so it's this tiny little university right on the border between Maine and New Brunswick. And she works in the Acadian Archives up there. Her name is Lise Pelletier and she's fantastic. I love her. She's very passionate about her work. So she's going to give a talk to our class on the vitality of the Francophone community in Northern Maine. And then I have a friend, Clint Bruce, who's going to be speaking on his expertise in Nova Scotia and Louisiana. So he's going to bring those two areas to the table. Mm -hmm. It's going to be a good class. Different for me because I've never taught this material in English. I've only ever taught about Acadia in French. And so it's going to be challenging for me to figure out how to approach it. I have to look at different reading materials, for example, but also how I use my own language. Mm-hmm. Just, just speak in English about something that I only really know in French. A nice little challenge. Yeah, an interesting challenge for sure. <laughs> so I'm going to definitely have a nice little disclaimer for my students. 
Sorry, if you don't understand, just let me know. I'll reword it. <laughs> yeah, it'll be a learning experience all around. Yes, and on definitely. Levels. Nice. Had you been interested in studying the culture and uh, kind of linguistic background of Acadian communities, you know, early on in your academic path? Or did you kind of... It's how I started, oh. actually. Um, I'll tell you a little story here. Uh, in 2000, no, 2000, no, 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 wait, 1996, <laughs> I was in my undergrad at the University of New Brunswick, and I got accepted to a one-month study abroad in Brussels. Uh, so I went over, and uh, it was actually funded by the Société Nationale de l'Acadie, so the National Society of Acadia. Um, it's a not-for-profit group that has a little bit of political leaning, but you know, not supposed to be. And so they funded my trip to Belgium. And there were 12 Canadians there. I was the only non-Francophone. I was the only Anglophone speaker there. All the other 11 Canadians were Francophone and they were Acadian. They all came from New Brunswick, French-speaking communities of New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, PEI, Labrador, and Newfoundland. But they took me under my wing because I was the uh, I was the little English Canadian there, and so I was I was the minority. And yet they had gone to Belgium to continue studying French, and actually, what it was is so that they could bring word of Acadia to Belgium. Mm-hmm. And I just came to continue my French studies. So they brought me under my wing, under their wing, and then I was like. Acadia, what, what is this? Even though I grew up in New Brunswick, mm-hmm. it, I hadn't been taught anything about their culture. I hadn't been taught about the genocide, of course. Mm-hmm. I hadn't been taught about the role that the English played in driving out the French. That the land that where my mother still lives was a, a community where Acadians had fled to after the first wave of deportations. So I got interested in these these histories of the people that I met in Belgium. And so I went back my third year of university and said, I want to do my honors project on Acadia. And <laughs> it ended up being a classic uh, language attitude study on one of the dialects uh, of New Brunswick called Chiac, which is spoken down around the, the southwest area of Moncton. And it was yeah classic language attitudes project, you know, by... Uh, the match guys experiment. And then I moved on into my master's and I want to continue something like this. And it, it was very similar, just expanded throughout New Brunswick a little more. And then a PhD, it grew even more, but went beyond language attitudes to language ideologies. And so, and yeah, it just grew in size and scope and, and then got more narrow as I've delved into my most recent research. These past few years, not maybe not more specific, but just taking a different path lately. So a lot of cool personal history behind the class that's coming up this fall. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of, I think I also see it as my duty to bring this knowledge to students. And in, in a way, that's why I came to Western, because I knew that no one had ever heard of Acadia out here. My colleagues, maybe, in the French. Mm-hmm. I remember when I gave my job talk, I asked everyone in the room who had heard of Acadia, and about half of the people raised their hand. 
And those were academics in the language department, some of them, of course, in, in the French program. So I had even, I knew that students wouldn't know on the West Coast. Students don't know about Canada very much as it is. Mm-hmm. Never know what happens on the East Coast. <laughs> and so I took it upon myself to say it's going to be a little rough for the first few years to bring interest into why are we studying this small minority group? Why don't we just study European French? Or is it, how is it different from Quebec? It's very different in all aspects. And uh, I said, well, the Acadians have really suffered over the years and they continue to suffer assimilation and judgment from the greater Anglophone community throughout North America. They're making headway here and there and laws are being put into into place um, for bilingualism and language uh, revitalization. But still, it's a very, very uphill battle. And so... uh, you know, I do what I can on the West Coast. Just bringing that knowledge up here a little bit. I said, hey, there's something else. It's yeah. not just France. It's not just Quebec. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I French is the language that I've spent the most time studying, which, you know, comes and goes in my brain. But I, I got really <laughs> lucky and my school had an after school program. Uh, <gasps> I was in fifth grade. So I got to start learning, uh, you know, a second language. Well, I also went to Hebrew school, but that's a, that's a whole other thing. But, um, that's a whole other story right <laughs> there that I'd love to hear. <laughs> it's yeah. It, so I, yeah, I mean, I had a mix of, uh, languagey things happening, but, uh, my perception of just studying French in the U S is very much like you said, it's, it's Parisian French, it's European mm-hmm. French. And like, yeah. there's, there's the mention of like, well, like Quebec exists and they do, they're mm-hmm. do some, they're doing some different stuff. Um, yeah. But also, like you said, I, I did not know what or who Acadia pertained to until very recently. So yeah, it is very much kind of shuttered away in. Mm-hmm. Uh, hush, hush. You don't talk about it. And if you do know about Acadians a little bit, you associate it only with a very small community, it's one small spot, maybe New Brunswick. And that's an area that, or, or um, an aspect of research that I'm trying to get into right now is that for my undergrad, my master's, my PhD, I focused on the community of New Brunswick because that's where the largest speak, largest community of speakers are located. But then I realized that I'm doing a disservice to the other communities. I'm othering them as well. So Acadia is being othered within Francophone Canada. Yet if I only focus on the most well-known group of Acadians in New Brunswick, I'm not helping the future for those in PEI, Nova Scotia, Maine, who are really having a rough time maintaining their language, especially now that the border's been closed. Yeah. Because... The border literally separates, it's, it's a bridge, there's a river, the mm-hmm. river is the border, St. John River, that I grew up on, further down, and it separates <laughs> Edmonston, New Brunswick, from Madawaska, Maine. And over the year, for decades now, centuries, there have been families that live on both sides of the border. And since 9-11, people have been much, the Canadians have been much more hesitant to cross which meant that families didn't spend as much time together, which meant that the language did not get transmitted between families so much, especially on 
the American side mm-hmm. where French is not maintained or, or uh, taught nearly to the same degree. It doesn't have any, there are no rights associated with, with French. It's not in the education system as much. So, and then now with COVID, no crossing, those families have not been able to see each other. Mm-hmm. So I'm really interested in seeing what the impact on the ethno-linguistic vitality of Maine, how that's, how COVID is going to affect them long-term. Yeah. Yeah. That, it makes me think as many things have of, of course, language revitalization efforts and maintenance efforts in the past year and how, because so much of our communication happens over Zoom or text or mm-hmm. on the phone, but I think, and I think this isn't just me, and I've talked about it on with some professors before, there's this structured element that is required for so much of our communication or has been yeah. required where, you know, some, some spontaneity is lost where... Uh, if I if I want to talk to my mom, we have to schedule a time where we like talk on the phone and, you know, there's no like, okay, well, just see you yeah. later. There's like a, we have to, you know. That has come with technology. So if, if, yeah, yeah, totally. And so it feels like for those families to communicate and maintain that language, it just, it feels like some, mm-hmm. and maybe, maybe this is, uh, I'm reading too far into it, but it, it just it seems like the spontaneity of them just getting together and hanging out and language just happens naturally versus okay we're yeah. all going to get on zoom and we're going to we're going to speak the language together like it's a performance right to a it feels extent now and you have to gear yourself up to it and it just reminds me uh, way back when i was a kid you know that there was no such thing as texting and so if you called someone and say hey let's all meet up mm-hmm. let's go to the movies you would just wait, you would all go and just wait for everyone to hang up. Whereas now you're like, I'm on my way. I'm in the parking lot. Where are you? (laughs) Right? Like you dictate every single moment of your life is spelled out through technology now and there's no spontaneity. And there's certainly, you know, helpful tools in plenty of ways. Yes. Um, Oh, I'm not denying that. But, uh, you know, people who have not been able to communicate with one another on different sides of the world totally can. I've talked with so many family members and so many friends more regularly this past year, like a lot of people I think have. Um, but yeah, yeah, that'll be interesting to see the impacts of what COVID and the border mm-hmm. closure have done. I have heard, though, that the main New Brunswick border is set to open July 1st. Oh, wonderful. That's the only part of that whole border that's going to open. And both New Brunswick and Maine are sparsely populated in terms of states and, and provinces. And so I'm like, oh my gosh, that poor, those poor areas, everyone's going to flood those two areas and try to cross those tiny little borders. There aren't very many and they're very small borders. But I have a brother in Portland, Maine, and my mother is still in Fredericton, New Brunswick. Mm. Thank goodness. Because <laughs> my mom, she's not very mobile anymore. Mm-hmm. She lives alone. So mm-hmm. I say, like, okay, my brother can well, finally, hopefully if it goes through, we'll be able to go visit her. Oh, that's wonderful. It's it's a tiny little bridge between Madawaska, Maine and Edmonston, New Brunswick. Like it's a bridge of 500 feet. <laughs> you can walk across it. Like It is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. And so, I, yeah, I would walk across that bridge many times when I was up there in 2014 for the World Acadian Congress. And it was taking place 
it was fantastic. World Acadian Congress that was supposed to encompass uh, northern New Brunswick, part of Quebec, and northern Maine. So it was encompassing two provinces, one state, two countries. And you would just like cross that border, th- you know, 10 times a day going from event to event. It's like, oh, I'm going to Canada now. Whoop, whoop, I have to go back to Maine. <laughs> That's so fun. I love that. I miss that. Yeah. So you talked about um, in teaching about Acadian communities and in teaching this knowledge about uh, Francophone people in uh, this part of Canada and how that intermixes with European French and that (laughs) linguistic culture. I'm so curious about the French language classes Mm -hmm. that I teach a couple. I'm wondering how your own background in Canadian French, in non-European French, if that, like how that affects the classes, if there's students who come in with like certain expectations of things, or they're like, that is different from what I know to be true, or... Oh, you, you're going to have to read a book chapter that I just sent in. Um, <laughs> it was, I was invited to partake in this book called Reflections from Abroad. And mm-hmm. so it's this, all these Canadian expats, essentially, who are scholars, are contributing to this book about how their identity, Canadian identity, has shifted over the years through teaching Canada or researching about Canada or doing service about Canada. And so I, there's a portion in this chapter where I talk about my first day teaching at Western, walking in all confident, high heels, new dress, <laughs> you know, it's like, ah, big shot, mm-hmm. right out of grad school. And students look at me going, huh? Not understanding a word that came out of my mouth. Oh, no. And I was like, what, what the heck? And, I, and I, was, I was initially, like, personally offended, but then I realized why, you know, and I thought about the othering of French Canada and what students are taught. And you look at the textbooks, and it only refers, or at that time, mostly referred to European French. The little sidebar would talk about Canada, maybe. So there's a whole background behind it. But there's a, there's a funny little story that I talk about in this book chapter and of how students look at me and my my thoughts about that um it comes out every single day and it takes students actually a little while to get used to me um Mm. but then that i think that alone hearing a completely different accent is what gets them interested in sociolinguistics mm-hmm. without me even having to talk about it. They're like, where is she from? Why is she talking that way? And then if they ask me to clarify something, then sometimes I'll go off on a little tangent and talk about the differences between European French, Canadian French, Acadian French, Quebec French, etc. And it could just simply be because vocabulary, for one, is, is vastly different. For example, what's a word that or an expression we use all the time? You know, at the end on a Friday, we'll say, you know, have a good weekend. Mm-hmm. I have never, ever used bon weekend ever. Well, I just didn't. It sounds very strange. <laughs> yeah. my mouth. Very weird. For me, it's la fin de semaine, the end of the week. Bon mm-hmm. fin de semaine. Because that's how it is in Canada. Weekend, fin de semaine. It makes total sense. Yeah. We don't use the anglicism that is used in France or in, in uh, Europe or in the United States for that matter. And so I, I remember saying that and students like, huh? 
wishing you a, a good weekend. How is that not, you know, you're a third year French student. How can you not understand that? And they're like, oh, wait a minute. This isn't Canada anymore. <laughs> it would be fine when I was teaching in grad school. That I didn't have a problem with quite so much. But the moment I moved down here. And most, a lot of it had to do with specific expressions. And of course, the accent very uh, much more nasally. And just certain vowels that are used more prominently in Canada than they are. And so it got interwoven unconsciously, mm-hmm. which then made it a conscious effort to talk about it. As I saw students trying to piece together the, the, the puzzle. What is she doing? Why is she saying that? Why, why is she showing us a flag of, of Acadia? Or what is Acadia? What's this flag? And why aren't we seeing the, the French flag so much? So it started out unconscious and became a conscious effort. That's so interesting. Gosh, when I came to Western, I had not intended to take language classes in part because, as mentioned, Hebrew school and uh, <laughs> studied a lot of language at my at my previous college. Uh, and so I was able to have my language requirement wrapped up real nice. Uh, but if I could have picked any language class to be part of, it so would have been one of your French classes knowing that just to have that extra layer of socioling built in. That sounds so cool. <laughs> it was, it's fun. And once I realized why the confusion and difficulty or the initial challenge was there for students, then I said, okay, I got it. Let me figure out how I can make it more interesting for them and give them the sociolinguistic cultural knowledge without it being necessarily the focus of a general language class. And so I brought in a lot of a lot of culture, cultural content that way. Yeah. I would have yeah. loved to have you in class. That would have been fun. <laughs> it's I, I do like I do like studying language. It's certainly not it's not a thing that I've spent a ton of focus on, but especially with having linguistic knowledge, you know, it's it's so much more fun now to study language and Right? So yeah, yeah it would have been cool. It's um, kinda hard to separate the two. Yeah, and I've never had someone who is by trade at all a linguist you know teach me language that i can think of so that experience also would have been just <laughs> so oh so cool i'm so i'm jealous of the people who get to do it in the future ah it'd be so neat so you've talked about a couple things that you know make teaching your classes in language and Canadian american studies and linguistics uh challenging or interesting I want to hear about something that you love about any or all of the things that you get to teach in. Hmm. It sounds so basic, but it's seeing students' reaction when they're exposed to something new mm-hmm. and realizing just how diverse language is. I don't know how many times a quarter my students and actually people in town, whatever, when they realize that I'm Canadian and then I teach French, the question is, well, how is, is French different in Canada? And for me, I'm like, well, of course it is. How can you not understand that? But then reel back and okay, put myself in their shoes. And just to open up someone's eyes a little bit differently. And I'm like, well, is... American French the same, or you're from Western Washington, do they speak the same on the other side of the mountains? No. There you go. 
Give me some examples of how they don't. And so I try to get them to answer their own question. And that way, they they see, they realize just how big the world is. And if I can make, or if I can get someone to get a passport who's never had a passport before and say, I want to see this place. I want to go there and do that. And that has happened many, many, many times. They're like, they have taken French because that's what they took in junior high or high school, but they've never had a passport. And they get a passport and the first place they go is Canada. Or if it, the first place they go is France or Belgium or uh, Northern Africa, doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Get them to experience the world, whether that is through language, whether that is through literature, whether that is through travel, friendships, anything. That for me is my favorite thing. And I just happen to do it through language. <laughs> it's a basic response, but it means so much to me. I think the basic ones are maybe the purest love for for the job, but really the life, the the passion mm-hmm. for the work. So, Because that's how I got my passion for what I do. Mm-hmm. Because I was offered an opportunity to go to Belgium for a month. I'm like, woohoo, you know, party in Belgium, Brussels, you know. 19 year old student Woo! met a really nice Spanish boy when I was there had a lot of fun but then met this other group and that that paved my way Mm -hmm. yeah because I traveled I took one little trip and asked a question I saw this group of Acadians and was like tell me about yourself it was just it was just a question and that got me hooked Mm -hmm. mm-hmm mm-hmm Doing the socioling before it really, before I knew what it was, before, <laughs> before it fully kicked in. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. Linguistics and language are totally the the gateway drug to, I think, exploring <laughs> the rest of the world around you. <laughs> well, it's I've got another story for you, and it, it mm. ties into all this a little bit on how I realized that language was important to me, or mm. how my brain works. Yeah, um, I mentioned of how I grew up taking all my classes in French, in the French immersion program. Because New Brunswick not only is Canada a federally bilingual province, or country, but New Brunswick is a bilingual province, meaning all the provincial services have to be offered equally in both French and English. Mm-hmm. Education, judicial system, health care, etc. So everything I took up to high school was in French. But when I got to grade 10, I had the option of choosing to leave French immersion or go and go into the English track or stay. And like every 14 year old girl of that generation, I wanted to be a veterinarian. (laughs) Right. Everyone, every, yeah. Everyone wanted to be a vet, which my brother now is. He took my dream job. Mm. (laughs) Actually, I've got my dream job now. It's all good. I decided, well, I'm going to be a vet and there are no French vet schools, so I better learn my sciences in English. Yeah, I was, I was being smart, I thought. Mm-hmm. Biology, chemistry, physics, all that stuff, math. I didn't understand a thing. Oh, no. My grades started plunging from a 90-some average and I was getting like 70s. And I can't show these grades to my mom. Oh, my gosh. I remember being so scared. But I realized what it was. I spent all my time translating the material that I didn't have time to focus on the actual material. I was looking at how the language shifted from English to French. And I realized 
sciences is not for me. Let me go into the into the language science of linguistics. Mm-hmm. So that's how I ended up going into French in my undergrad, and then going to Belgium because I couldn't understand biology in English <laughs> to be a vet. God, and I think uh, Judy Pine, who I talked to, also was I think on a, on the track to be a vet. I'm pretty sure. So like. Something, something with something that, that vet track to language, man. I don't, I don't know. Language is a science, so there's yeah. still something scientific in there. You know, it, teaching teaching language is a pattern. It's nothing, a series of patterns. You just got to learn them. Totally. You made the thing that you were doing all along your science. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I'm still a scientist. You, d- yeah, you did it, <laughs> <laughs> Christina. I have had such. A wonderful morning talking to you, and I'm so sad to steer us toward the end of the no! interview. I okay. know. I'm looking at the time. Oh, yeah, I have been <laughs> talking quite a bit. That tends to happen. And I've so enjoyed all of the stories you've had to share so far. So I've got two wrap-up questions for you. Okay. The first, if you could bring back a class that you've taught or create a class on any topic, as broad or as narrow as you would like, what would that class be? Easy. I would do a sociolinguistic fieldwork as a study abroad. Ah. Easy answer. Take them to the community, get them involved in the community, you know, a good 10, 15 credit course where you live, get to know the community, and then work on an actual project of whatever we decide to do. Ethnolinguistic vitality or something. Something that's good for the community that you can then put into a report, send back to the community. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Just mm, easy. Is that like you would want everybody to go as a group to the same place or like have people? Mm-hmm. Okay, sweet. It'd be a smaller group probably mm-hmm. to not overwhelm the yeah. community. And just have it oh, like... You often think of, oh, we're going on an archaeological dig here about these groups going somewhere. Yeah. That's what we would do as linguists. Go in, dig, figure out, go with our question, or go to the community, get to know them, get to see what their concerns are, what they want, what their concerns are, and then start formulating a project, do field work there, do analysis. Yeah. Nice. Oh, that'd be so cool. I hope I hope future students get to see it, because that I'd would be... To. Because I know how to run a study abroad program now. I do that for Montreal. Mm -hmm. And I know how to do a sociolinguistic field course. Put them together. Yeah. 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 It'd be awesome to see the sociolingual field work Mm -hmm. become available and expanded like that. Yeah. Easy. What's your second question? I know you've got another one there. I do. I do. And I, I... I always pick these, the very fun, random ones at the end, and I had a few, and I think the one we should go with is, what's something you've done so many times you could do it with your eyes closed? (laughs) Teach French nasal vowels. (laughs) (laughs) Are we talking work or anything? Oh, anything, anything. anything. I love that answer, but like... If, if that's the true one, absolutely. But if, like, anything else comes to mind, totally. Weightlifting? In- nice. <laughs> Punching people? <laughs> that requires aim. That's impressive. Yeah, I've had a lot of practice with that. I, could- <laughs> really? I, was just, I was doing stuff like that earlier before I got online here. 
nice, really sharp proprioception, like <laughs> being able to. It's the best stress relief ever. I yeah. don't get involved in any crazy work politics or anything because I go and punch out my stress at the end. And I feel great. Yeah. But, uh, oh, yeah, French nasal vowels. I can teach that <laughs> with my eyes closed. No problem. I, I did it for like twice a year for 10 years. And now it's down to once a year since my teaching contract changed. Uh, yeah, it's fun. Two very different but very impressive skills. Yes. <laughs> but anything that makes me talk like me and really use my nose to you know, make it worth its while because, you know, it's a significant nose. Um, there. It's fun. Yeah. Your nose workout. Exactly. Okay. Any type of workout. Nasal or muscular. Christina's got you covered. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Need a workout? Nasal or muscular? Christina. <laughs> well, thank you so much again, Christina, for being on the podling. I've so appreciated getting to talk to you and hearing about so fun. Oh, can we do this again? I would love to. Yeah. I would love to. I would love to do a second round. Well, thank you all so much for listening. Thank you so much for having me. This has been the best Monday in a long time. I'm so glad. To, but now I have to go see how many um, emails I got so I can determine how many yes. more minutes in the garden I get. The garden tokens. Yes. 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 Nice. <laughs> Bye, y'all. Bye. Thank you.